0: Um, We're going to pick up in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, and another teaching, we're going to start with another teaching that kind of seems repetitive, like, oh, I think we've been here before. Um, In chapter 18, Jesus was teaching that we need to have blank as a child, and what's what's the blank? Not faith. What is it? Humility Humility like a child. Everybody quotes faith like a child, but that's not in the scriptures, it's just not there. Um, but humility like a child is, and I even challenged people when we covered that passage, if you can find the verse, that talks about having faith like a child, send it to me. Nobody sent me it. So either you didn't look, or you looked and didn't find it, whichever which either I didn't find it, and I looked all over the place for it. Um, we have to have humility as a child. Now, this is, the second, um, this is the second time since Jesus started his journey toward Jerusalem that children are around Jesus. And the first time, Jesus actually grabbed the child and pulled him over to him. This time, there's parents, uh, we're assuming parents, there's adults bringing children to Jesus. And we pick up in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 19, verses 13 through 15, says this. Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. And Jesus said, leave the little children alone and don't try to keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after placing his hands on them, he went on from there. Now, they brought children to Jesus to lay his hands on them. Does that sound odd to any of you? If you didn't grow up in like a church culture, that may sound odd. But if you grew up in a church culture, you might understand that. We still do this today, often when we're performing blessings, right? So you'll pray for somebody and you'll lay hands on them and you'll ask God to bless them. We do this as a church often when military families are leaving. We should do it when they arrive, but they're too embarrassed at that point. But when, they, when they're leaving, we'll have them come up on the stage and we'll lay hands on them and we'll just ask for God's blessing upon them. It's a very common thing to do. Um, as a matter of fact, um, Joseph, when he went to bless um, Ephraim and Manasseh, he laid his hands on them to give them his blessing and to pass on the blessing that God had given him. And when he went to do that, he actually crossed his hands over because the parents wanted to set up one thing, but God chose to bless the second child instead of the first, A really cool thing. But that's in Genesis chapter 48, we read about that, where, Jesus, where uh, Joseph actually blesses Ephraim and Manasseh by laying his hands on them. Now, the, the parents are coming and bringing the kids so Jesus can lay his hands on him and bless the children, and the disciples start rebuking the adults, the parents. And then Jesus said, listen, don't do that. Don't do it. He actually gives them a positive and a negative command. He said, let them come and do not hinder them. Let them come and do like a double. Like, yeah, let them, but, sometimes you need a double reminder, don't you? Any of you slow learners like me? Yeah, I think my parents repeated everything to me at least twice when they needed me to get something. And and I don't know if they did the whole positive-negative thing, but that's pretty helpful. Like, give them the positive command and the negative. Like, let them come and don't hinder them. If they said, don't stop them, don't stop them, it might not have sunk in. But, you know, Um, I think it's just a great way to get a message across. And Jesus does that with the disciples. And then he says this statement that we've heard before. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Well, that's an interesting statement. What are these children doing that's so significant that Jesus claims that they belong and people like them belong to the kingdom of heaven? They're kind of being brought. Is it that they are still just symbolizing the outcasts of society like they were in chapter 18? Maybe. But maybe there's more. I want you to hold that thought because we're going to come back to it. But why did Jesus say... The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these little children. So Jesus did place his hands on the kids, and he blessed them, and then he sent them away, and they they went on their way. Um, They headed toward Jerusalem once again. And while they're traveling, a, a man approaches, Matthew 19, 16. And just then, someone came up and asked him, teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Now, we don't know much about this person. I already said it was a man, but that's not even in this verse. Um, We find out later on in the passage in Matthew that it was a man who had a lot of possessions. We find out from Luke's account that he was a ruler and that he was like really rich, Luke chapter 18. So often this passage is referred to as the rich young ruler. Have you heard that phrase? The rich young ruler. You have to really kind of put the, the two of them together to get it. Um, but it's from Luke and Matthew being joined together, the rich young ruler. And in contrast to the Pharisees who've been coming at Jesus, trying to trick him and trap him and discredit him, this man seems to have pretty, in, pretty good motives. He's coming up to Jesus, not trying to trap him, but he has a question. And he says this, what, um, he says, uh, teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. And if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. So the commandments come from the one who is good, from Yahweh himself. And if you want to achieve what God offers, which is eternal life, then you have to do all that God says. You have to keep his commandments. That kind of seems logical, right? Which commandments? Did you know that in the Torah there's about 613 commands How many of you just love rules? Yes, Yes, bring them on, right? We do actually like rules, and I know that because when somebody does something stupid and breaks a rule, you're quick to point it out, which means that you really do like the rules. You just, we just generally like the rules to apply to everyone else. Can we be honest about that, right? We want rules for other people, not for ourselves, but there's 613 rules. So which rules did, did he mean when Jesus said, keep all the commandments. When you hear of the commandments, what comes to your mind? The big 10, right? It's called the Decalogue, the 10 words, the 10 commandments. Yeah, um, there's the 10 and there's the 613. So I'm thinking if I were in the shoes of this man who went to Jesus and said, Jesus, what do I need to do so that I can have eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commands. I might want to try to narrow that feel down a little bit, right? And that's exactly what the man does. Which ones, he asked him. Well, Jesus answered, don't murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus goes right to the Decalogue. He goes right to the 10 words. And, and the first, in the 10 words, in the 10 commandments, the first four are about our relationship with God. The next six are really about our relationship with others. And they start in number five, and they go in this order. Honor your parents. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Number nine, do not bear false witness. They look pretty familiar here, right? Jesus kind of changed up the order a little bit. That's okay. And then Jesus actually added another one onto there, too, didn't he? Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not one of the top ten. When Jesus summed up all of the law and prophets, he did it in two commands, love your neighbor as yourself, and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The love your neighbor as yourself comes from the book of Leviticus, not from Deuteronomy, not from the Ten Commandments, Leviticus 19, 18. So Jesus said, keep these, any names off five, five of the ten. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever murdered somebody, um, or, or done any of these other things. But... This is a list that if somebody was trying to live in a way to honor God, it seems like it could be a reasonable list to keep. Would you agree with that? There might be challenges along the way, but it seems like a reasonable list to keep. Probably the hardest one is honoring your your father and mother. Um, But I'm still working on it, guys, Okay. Um, So the young man says this in response. I have kept these. The young man told him, so what do I still lack? Well, if you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go and sell your belongings and give to the poor and you'll have treasures in heaven. And then come and follow me. Well, when the young man heard that, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. So what do we learn from this passage? Obviously, it's the calling of everybody who wants to follow Jesus to sell everything that they have. That's what this passage means, right? We even have a spot in our communication card where you can check the box, you want to sell everything you have, and, I mean, well, no. Obviously, that's not it. Of course not. Um, It it means that as a Christian, you have to take a vow of poverty because God doesn't like rich people, right? No, but isn't that sometimes what's perceived here? His teaching is about how this man who may have been very religious and a very good man, still could not keep all of the commandments. We we skipped over five of those 10 commandments. Number 10 is do not covet your neighbor's stuff. And number one is do not have any other gods besides Yahweh. For this man who had so much money That money was more important than his relationship with Yahweh. His money and his possessions became his God. And I'm sure that this young man gave alms to the poor. It's a phrase we don't use often today, but giving alms to the poor would be to take leftover grain and passing it on or leftover money and giving it so that people could take care of uh, those that didn't have a way to provide for themselves. Almsgiving was a very big part of the religious community. And if he was keeping those commandments, he probably was also giving alms. But I'm sure he thought that was enough. However, there was something that he still lacked. You see, if if he truly loved his neighbor, wouldn't he want his neighbor to have what he has? And before you answer that quickly, think of the implications of how you answer that. If you truly love your neighbor, wouldn't you want them to have what you have? Jesus said, take what you have, sell it, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. In other words, take what you have and give it to them so they have what you have. Because if you did that, you would truly love your neighbor. Now, this man left grieving, I think, because the price tag was way too high. And I also have a feeling that that conversation haunted him. From that day forward. Then Jesus makes another statement that's even harder than that one. He said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So so why is it harder for rich people? Are riches evil? Well, The scripture doesn't teach that. The scripture doesn't say that riches are evil. Scriptures teach that the love of money is the root of all evil, right? That's 1 Timothy 6.10. So why then is it harder for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom than someone who is poor? Because the person who has what they need tends not to trust in God. I don't need God, I have everything that I need. I have made, I'm a self-made man, a self-made woman. I have created what I need and I can take care of myself. God is for weak people. Have you heard these kind of statements? God is for those who can't take care of themselves, for the poor and for the needy, not for those of us that are strong or intelligent. Um, People who are wealthy in ways often trust in in their wealth in their possessions more so than they do in God. Perhaps that's why the Beatitudes did not include them in the list. We just had the Blessed Be passages read this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn. What you didn't read are blessed are the rich. Interesting, isn't it? The kingdom belongs to those that understand their need for God and trust God for everything, including their daily bread, as we were taught to pray. So Jesus then makes a statement about an eye of a needle. How many of you have heard that phrase before? Right, that's a pretty popular one, right? Now, I've heard it explained three different ways. I don't know how you've heard this one explained. Have you, have you heard it explained? Kind of, yeah. All right. One is that the word camel and the word rope come from the same root words and are very similar in their spelling. And that what was really intended here, it's easier for a rope to go through the eye of a sewing needle than for a rich man. Now, I find that a stretch I'm just not willing to take, okay? It's a little bit far for me, uh, as the word used here for camel is translated camel everywhere else in the New Testament. It doesn't become rope somewhere else. Somebody doesn't climb on their rope and drive away, right? So you, you use the same word as camel everywhere else. It's kind of a stretch to all of a sudden turn it into rope in, in this case. So I, I don't follow that one. Um, some have explained it regarding a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle that a camel, totally unloaded, might be able to uh, lay down and get through. How many of you have heard of that explanation, the gate? Okay. So actually, I found it interesting. Um, this is from the Library of Congress, and it's tagged as the eye of the needle gate in Jerusalem uh, from the Library of Congress. They, they believe that that little door over there is, a, is the eye of the needle um, gate that was referred to in this passage. It even references the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, in, in the Library of Congress. I thought, okay, that's, all right, that's interesting. Uh, matter of fact, um, there's other people that think that they know what the eye of the needle gate is, and you can book a tour on uh, TripAdvisor to go to a Russian Orthodox church and actually experience what they unearthed in their excavations as the eye of the needle gate, which is that little hole in the wall there. And there's other pictures. I didn't want to put anybody else on the internet without their approval, but there's pictures of people that have put their, their trip pics on there where they're, they're kind of bent over. I mean, it's, it's like no bigger than this, plat, this little podium here. And that's an eye of the needle gate. And you can pay to take a tour to go through the, the Russian Orthodox Church and see that if you want to. Um, yet there is a surprising lack of biblical or extra biblical literature or evidence that such a gate ever existed. It's not mentioned in the Bible. Matter of fact, I can't find any Jewish historical evidence that it ever existed. I haven't been able to find, and I looked. I actually wanted to look at. Okay, what is this? What is the eye of the needle? Um, the earliest reference we have to anybody mentioning the eye of the needle as a gate was in the 11th century, and it was an English writer. So the first mention we have that the eye of the needle was probably a gate. Okay? Um, Just a couple thoughts on that. If a needle was a place or a gate, it would generally be called using the same words each time you referenced it. For instance, you wouldn't call it water town and then the next time call it liquid town. Right? Because that would be two different towns. You don't take a gate and change the name, the word that you use for a gate, if it's known as a gate, as place. Well, Matthew and Mark use one word, and Luke uses a different word. Both of them are types of needles. The one that Matthew and Mark refer to, um, this first Greek word, is actually like a sewing needle. Um, when Mark says you don't sew up a new patch onto an old wineskin, or onto a an, onto an uh, new patch, onto an old garment, because then it will shrink and tear, right? That's the same needle here. When uh, Luke refers to Jesus' garments when he's on the cross and they're taking his garments, he referred to them as, as garments that had no needling. They were completely woven with no stitching, no needling. And the word needle here is what's used um, in that passage as well. That's in uh, John nineteen twenty three. Then Luke, when he talks about this passage, the same exact passage about the camel going through the eye of a needle, he uses a different word for needle, which has more to do with like an arrow and a sharp point, which was more commonly used. It's only found in this one case in the Bible, but outside of the scriptures, it was more commonly used as a surgical instrument, which makes sense because Luke was a physician, right? So they used two different words to describe the same description that Jesus had. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, If it was a place, I have a feeling they would have used the same word in both instances, but perhaps not. There are other gates mentioned in the New Testament, by the way, and they have the word gate after them. This one doesn't. Um, So I'm not quite sure I follow that one. The third understanding, and it's the one that I adhere to, is the most literal translation, which means a literal camel and a literal needle. It's easier to shove a camel through the eye of a sewing needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And you're like, well, that's quite the exaggeration. Yes, it's called hyperbole. And rabbis use it a lot. Jesus uses it, as a matter of fact, in other places. uh, Here's one, Matthew 23, 24. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but gulp down a camel. You ever get a bug in your drink? He's like, yeah, there's a little bug that flies in your drink and you take it out and then you swallow a camel while you're drinking it because you didn't even see the camel. It's like, that's hyperbole. They didn't swallow a camel really, right? You, You get that, don't you? Little tiny bug, big huge camel, trying to make a point. Jesus is doing the same thing here. Little tiny opening, one of the smallest openings you can have, a needle, sewing needle, and a huge animal, one of the largest you would have in that region, the camel. Big animal, little opening. He's using hyperbole to bring home a point. So we have uh, here, let let me me give you an illustration. I I need one adult and one child. And If you happen to be related, that's fine. If not, you can borrow a child from somebody. Just give them back. Okay, Eric, come on up. Come on. <laughs> now I know. I know you're not. A, you come up here. I know you're not a child, really, because you're in the youth group. <laughs> but you're younger than he is. Alright. Alright. So I, I need a little bit of help here. So. Uh, Eric, you, you hold that. I want you to take this and put it through that. That seemed pretty easy. Now you hold that. I want you to put that through that. Okay, You can't leave the stage until you get it done, All right? Now could you do it? If I whittle enough, I guess Okay, you could whittle it down. I suppose if you ground it up and powdered piece it, I, right? I suppose if you, if you mashed up a camel, you could shove it through an eye of a needle too if you mushed <laughs> it up fine enough, but that'd be really gross. Goodness. So, um, thank you guys. I just to draw a point that, obviously the adults don't get it, but the kids do. You see, that's part of the lesson, you see that? Um, Jesus is trying to do that same type of illustration. It's a little tiny opening of something big, and you're like, there's no way it's gonna fit. Now, I, again, if you were creative, you could probably get a blender, take that camel and get it through the eye of that needle. But Jesus is obviously saying, no, you can't do it. You're not going to do it. It's meant to show an impossibility. And I want to read the rest of the chapter now so that you can see the, the scope of the rest of it. And we're just going to highlight a couple points as we come through, as we come through it. Um, at the, so Matthew chapter 19, verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished. And he asked, well, then who, can, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, It is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter responded to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. So what will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more And will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, I think that many commentaries try to look for a way to redefine this eye of the needle and this camel illustration to sound not so impossible because it's uncomfortable. I, I think we need to be careful not to change scripture just so that we're not uncomfortable with it amen Amen, right the disciples obviously were very uncomfortable with it too they were actually astonished because it seemed impossible matter of fact Jesus even used the word impossible didn't he he said well with man it's impossible but with God all things are possible For man, it's impossible to enter eternal life on their own. However, for God, that is possible because of grace. Now, the disciples won't understand all of what that means. As Jesus followers, we now understand the full implications of that because we know what Jesus came and did. But they're still waiting to see what he's going to do. So keep that in mind. All they know at this point is the law. So the disciples were astonished. Why? Well, you have to understand a little bit about Jewish mindsets. The general Jewish belief... Is that riches signified favor with God? If you were, especially if you were young and wealthy, it was because God was showing his favor to you. When you truly believe that everything comes from God, you can only come to the conclusion that if somebody is blessed with stuff, that God has chosen to bless them, right? And this person obviously was a very pious or religious person because he knew the law and he was approaching Jesus to ask him about the law and how he could be even better at the law. One of the benefits of being wealthy is that you had servants to do everything for you. Go through the religious mindset here so that you had time to study the scriptures. Right? Isn't that like the dream? have everybody clean your house, take care of your car, do your grocery shopping so you can stay home and just bask in God's word? It's like, eh, maybe. (laughs) Can I have a milkshake with it too? So you have a person who was obviously being shown the favor of God through their riches, who seemed to be a very pious person, and Jesus looks at this person and says, that person will probably not get into heaven. Well, if that person can't, who can? If the person is being shown the favor of God and the blessing of God, who knows God's word and is trying to live by God's word, can't get in, then who can possibly get into heaven? Who can possibly receive eternal life? So Peter asks a legit question. He's like, all right, what do I do with this? We're We're doing it, Jesus. We give up everything. We're following you. Is there anything there for us? Are we going to get eternal life? Is there any hope for us? And Jesus says, yeah, you are actually going to be on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes. You start to understand now why 12 disciples were picked. Obviously, it's very symbolic and connecting to the 12 tribes of Israel. But Jesus' point, and I don't want to get into the eschatology of this passage in the end times perspective, but Jesus' point was, yes, there is a reward at the renewal of all things. But what he's really saying is, you have to live today with the end in mind. You have to live this life with the next in front of you. When Jesus told the rich man to give up his possessions, he said, give up what you have here so that you can have treasures in heaven. You have to stop focusing on this and start focusing on that. Not living for this life alone, but living for the next one is what Jesus is trying to drive home with. And we need to live with the end in mind. And with that end in mind, Jesus says in verse 30, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Huh. It's, <laughs> you Okay. The disciples' uh, reaction to these passages make you really think that they expect that they'll be the first. And many who knew and kept the Torah um, would feel like they would be ones that should be entered into the kingdom of heaven. And and those disciples who gave up everything that they had would feel like they have earned a place in, in eternal life. So when we reach this passage and Jesus comes to the end of it, he throws out this statement that seems really bizarre. It seems to not have anything to do with the man with riches. The first will be last, and the last will be first. What does he really mean by that? The rich man, from the world's perspective, had the blessing of God, everything that he needed, the ability to bless others with what he had, an understanding of the Torah and time to read and study it. He had what everyone would want if they were going to be a follower of God. But just prior to this encounter, who was Jesus hanging out with? A bunch of children. Now, Jesus just said, this rich man... It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And yet, just prior to this passage, Jesus is with his disciples, and parents are bringing children to him, and Jesus puts his hands on the children and blesses them and says, The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Well, that's upside down. The disciples didn't think the children belonged with Jesus at all. They were rebuking the parents that take them away. They're the least. And this person who was receiving the blessing of God, obviously through his wealth and who knew the Torah and was trying to live for God, obviously was the greatest in the kingdom and should get in, in the disciples' minds. Jesus just flipped that whole thing upside down. The person who trusts in his own possessions and his own abilities will knock it into the kingdom, but the person who is carried by God who looks to God for the blessing and to God for the provision is the person who will enter the kingdom. You must be like this child. You must have the humility of a child. So Jesus flips the whole formula. And he's saying the children are the ones who got it right and the adults are the ones who have it wrong. I think one of the, one of the keys to this passage and understanding the dilemma of what's going on here are some very subtle words, use of words. In in Matthew 19, 16, we had this. Someone came up to him and said, Teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? And that word have means to possess. What must I do so that I can grab hold of, take hold of eternal life? Jesus' response why do you ask him about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He doesn't use the same word for possess. He talks about being ushered in or being allowed in or entering into something that you could never own, but that is owned by somebody else. If you want to enter into eternal life, then you must keep the commands. And then he says, If you want to be perfect, in verse 21, go and sell your belongings and give to the poor and you'll have treasures in heaven. That word perfect is also the same word for complete. We see this throughout the New Testament. Jesus is basically saying your collection of possessions is incomplete. And you want to possess the one thing that you don't have right now, and that's eternal life, and you can't possess it. It's not something you can own or take for yourself. What good thing can I do that I can take or have eternal life? And Jesus says, you you can't. But if you want to enter into what God has prepared, if you want to be allowed in, welcomed in to what God has prepared, then here's what you need to do. You need to get rid of your collection of possessions and start a new one, one that matters to God. Sell what you have, give to the poor, and start laying up treasures in heaven. Get rid of your collection and trade it for God's collection. Jesus taught this in the Sermon on the Hill, didn't he? Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The man wanted to know what he could do to possess eternal life. Our works, our money, even our acts of charity do not and cannot earn us eternal life. Do you get that? Our works, even our acts of charity, what we do cannot earn us eternal life. The greatest gift of all is eternal life, and that's what the wealthy man asked for. He wanted to earn it by his works, but Jesus made it clear that you can only inherit it from God. The root issue goes really deep. It actually goes really back to the beginning of mankind, if if you want to know for sure. And Jesus gave us a pointer back to the beginning. When Jesus answered the man, he said, when the renewal of all things comes. So when you renew something, how many of you ever renewed a car? Right? It's like, I don't know if I'd use that term. Well, yeah, they have the stuff you can use on your headlamps even, right? You can renew the headlamps, get the, yeah, they restore, right? Renew, restore. When you restore or you renew something, you make it like new again, which means you're going back to a former state where it used to be and where it is now. When Jesus uses that phrase, the renewal of all things, he's really hyperlinking us back to a time when there was a situation, when there was a reality that wasn't tarnished. When is that? The Garden. Genesis chapters one and two. David took us there. As a matter of fact, we were looking at the issues of marriage and divorce. Took us back to that same section. Jesus is constantly taking us back to the creation narrative. Let me take you back there. Chapters two and three. Genesis chapter two fifteen. The Lord took man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to, to work it, to watch over it, and commanded him, "You're free to eat from any tree of the Garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Familiar with this story? Two trees that they, that, that they mention in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. But one of those trees, and there's all, all sorts of other trees, obviously, because it's a garden. But one of those trees they couldn't eat from, God said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They actually were, would have been allowed to eat from the tree of life. I think I'd rather live in ignorance for eternity than to die knowing everything. You know what I'm saying? If you had to make that choice. So obviously we get to chapter three and we pick up with the serpent, right? The serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but... About the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or even touch it, or you'll die. Well, no, you won't certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. Oh, let me get you your next batches. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she did what? She took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The man and woman in the garden had a choice. God gave them a command and they had the choice of either trusting God for the definition of good and evil, good and bad, or taking it for themselves either accepting what God has offered them, which would lead to life, or taking what they want that they shouldn't for themselves and forfeiting what God has offered. That take and possess is a struggle in the heart of man from the very beginning. Do I trust God and obey him, which leads to life, or do I take What I want for myself, believing that I can have it and possess it on my own. The rich young man wanted to possess eternal life. He wanted to know what good deed he could do to take hold of that which only God can offer. Do you see that? You're going to see, if you look throughout scriptures, you'll see the thread over and over and over again of people taking things that don't belong to them, And it's always an abusive situation. People taking wives for themselves that don't belong to them. People taking, David did that as king. People taking things because they look good, they appear good, they seem right or okay. I want it, I'm going to have it. Instead of trusting in God and relying on God and doing things God's way so that he can provide, had they trusted God for the knowledge of good and evil, they would have received life. And I believe they would have received the knowledge of good and evil as well. Instead, they received death. The rich young man, again, he wants to possess eternal life. He wanted to know what he could do to grab a hold of it. But Ephesians tells us, you are saved by grace through faith. And it is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works. Or else we could boast. If I could earn my way in t- to God's favor how great would I be? Right? Look at me. Man, y'all should be like me. God looks at me and he smiles. He says, man, why can't you guys be more like Mike? Thank God you aren't. Right? Because I am not perfect. And that's the point. If we could do something great enough that we could earn God's favor and earn eternal life, then we would boast. And we would make ourselves out to be idols and gods in which case we would then disqualify ourselves once again there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation it's a gift from god a blessing from him to those that will humble themselves before him and there's many people today that believe that they can earn their way and do enough good things to enter eternal life you cannot there are people today that think they're good enough to be accepted by god And yet, only God is good, we read this morning. So that means that you're not. And there are even more people that have fallen into the trap of the rich man in trusting that their wealth and their possessions and that security is what really matters in life. And it's not. They're not. The premise of the question the young man asked is good. And it's one that we should stop and ask ourselves as well what can we do to inherit eternal life, is how I would rephrase it. What can we do not to take hold of for ourselves, what can we do to inherit eternal life? And God answered that. It's not by keeping the law perfectly like the young man thought he could do. You can question a lot of things, but I'm sure that the longer we sit down with ourselves and think about whether or not we're perfect, the more we'll realize we're not. Jesus told the rich young ruler to keep all the law, but he knew that was not possible. That's why Jesus came to earth in the first place. When Jesus made the impossible statement about the needle and the camel, it's because without God, it is impossible. You cannot earn your way into heaven. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus knew that it was not possible for this man, and he came to earth to provide a way. He was the child who was promised back in Genesis 3.15 that would undo the death sentence that Adam and Eve had, that would bring about the restoration to the way things were before man took for himself what did not belong to him, what he should not have possessed. Galatians chapter three, there's a couple more verses I want to leave you with. So why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise the promise of the Messiah, to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Well, absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. I don't think it gets much more plain than that. We cannot earn our way. We cannot be good enough to earn God's favor. We receive forgiveness of sins. We receive eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. He's the one who came to provide renewal. And the disciples don't know all of this yet, but soon, and the reason he's heading toward Jerusalem, you have to remember, he's on a journey to Jerusalem. He's going to go to offer up his life to be killed, to be buried and to rise from the dead, to conquer death and bring about life so that all those who will choose to place their faith in him will experience the same type of life and no longer be subject to death. Very familiar passage that I want to leave you with. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his, only, his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. I ask you to hold on to the thought about the children, and why would Jesus say that the kingdom belongs to such as them? Well, chapter 18 started with a reminder that we need to be humble like a child. We must have the humility of a child, not the faith of a child, the humility of a child. Chapter 19, we have an interlude where the children are brought to Jesus and he places his hand on them and he blesses them. And chapter 19 ends with the statement, the first will be last and the last will be first. Mixed in the middle of that is a bunch of adults who are battling with arrogance, the arrogant disciples, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? We have the Pharisees who are trying to protect themselves and protect their possessions and their belongings and their religion by trying to discredit Jesus. We have this rich person who wants people to look at him as a very spiritual person, but loves his money more than he loves God. The children are the key to this whole passage in chapters 18 and 19. While the adults vie for importance and position, while grown men and women fight to protect what they have from threats, and while they pretend to live for God and yet live for stuff stuff instead, it's the humility of the children that bring the blessing of Yahweh and make them the members of the kingdom of God. It is the same for you and me today. (laughs) What can we do to inherit eternal life? Humble ourselves. Stop trusting in what we know and trust in what God knows. Allow God to define good and evil. Allow God to define what is right and wrong. Believe that what God said is true that when he said that he sent his son to die for our sins so that we could have life through him, that it really is true and that Jesus really did do that for you and for me. Basically, become small in the eyes of the world so that you can become big in the eyes of the God who made you. So this week, I want you to think about a couple things as we leave. Are there things that you would not be willing to give up for God? If you were that rich young man standing before Jesus, what would Jesus say that you would struggle with if he said, give this up? If you do have things you can think of, they're idols. They need to be burned, need to be removed, need to be offered to God. Maybe we need to ask ourselves this question, um, how can I truly love my neighbor like myself? And have I? What are some things I can do to better love my neighbor like myself? If I really wanted my neighbor to have what God has blessed me with, what would that look like? And how would I treat my neighbor? And then I guess the last question I would ask is, are you trusting in something other than Jesus for your future and for your life? And if so, you don't need to and you shouldn't. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man enters into the Father except through him. If you want to enter into life, you have to go through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for providing a way. Thank you that you, you're not counting on me being good enough to earn your favor. But I thank you that you sacrificed Jesus for me so that I could be accepted into your family. Father, teach us to be humble. Teach us not to be concerned about power and position and protection, but help us to be thinking about how we can promote your kingdom instead. Teach us to trust you for our daily bread. Teach us to trust you for our life, both in this world and in the one to come. Help us to honor you, we pray, in the name of our Savior, Jesus, who died for our sins. Amen.